0: everybody so today back on the podcast we have a favorite guest of mine scott stevenson dr scott stevenson how we doing man
1: dr mcconey good to see you again it has <laughs> been a while i don't know it's been a year maybe something like it's that it's probably
0: been about a year yeah you know time yeah. flies but i was thinking the other day how long i've known you and Really, I mean, I, people who have been longtime long time the podcast know you were one of the first guests, right? And you and uh, Eric Helms were two of the people who kind of, I guess, not like really got me to do it, but more just, you know, from our conversations. I was like, okay, like, I know this guy, I know this guy, we can kind of get it going and, you know, some mutual connections. But I think in terms of even just online, I think it was since 2014 or 15, because that's when I started 4-2 training for the first time, I think I'm like 15. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's a long time, man.
1: You're you're kind of an, you're a little bit of an old schooler. You've been around for a while, you know. Yeah, so you've seen transitions that might be a topic that we talk about, like in the second half. You mentioned, yeah, yeah, going on now, sort of in the PED world. But, yeah, uh, yeah. You you got like you got some kind of some street cred based on just having been. That's a decade. That's nearly a decade. You know.
0: Yeah, it's funny to think that now, like, the T-Nation and the intense muscle days, like, those are now the old school days, right? Like, it's just not really, I mean, I think that websites are around, but they're not super active, so.
1: Yeah, yeah, so it's good, I think, it's always good to bring that perspective back, because it does serve, I believe.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so, you know, we're going to talk about. Some of that old stuff some of the, the new stuff but uh i guess we can kind of jump into that a little bit about some of the changes because actually I, I was surprised to hear that you were saying that you don't follow as much of the like american professional bodybuilding stuff anymore uh, right <laughs> and uh it, it, do you want to go into that at all i was kind of curious sure. why
1: sure it's uh long story short a friend of mine you now a friend of mine i was messaged on instagram I, and i tried to respond to every. unless I get, I get some strange ones i'm sure you might too as well but yeah. 99% of the messages I get, sometimes I miss things, too, because Instagram orders things however they want to. Like, the important message will be 15 pages down um, from someone in Germany, um, um, Nikki Mikowski. And I I wanted to respond to her in German. I saw this. She was from Germany. I said, so who is this? Did she buy my book? Why is she you know, messaging me? So I sent her a, a voice message. Uh, that, that time, my my phone wasn't set up in German. It is now. And um she's like, Oh yeah, everyone in Germany knows who you are and blah 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 blah, blah. I'm like oh, which is kinda cool. Yeah. You know. Because everyone speaks English really, really well there, pretty much. The large mm-hmm. majority they grow up sort of in a, a semi-English um world because so much of our pop culture has made its way over there. And I speak German. I was a German and physics major in college, so I was a foreign exchange student in ninety one. Okay. In '92, I spent a few months over in Germany, and then I then I started being becoming trained as an exercise physiologist, personal trainer, etc. And German was like maybe once every two years, I'd you know say a couple of words to someone in the grocery store or something like yeah, so. yeah, almost never. Um, and we started talking, but I retained a lot of it because when I went over there, I took the same approach that I sort of took in in bodybuilding was full immersion. I didn't speak literally any as a foreign exchange student didn't speak any English at least. When my parents came over once, I spoke English to them naturally, but otherwise it was complete immersion. So I retained a, a good bit, and she said, well, why don't we just, would you like to be a guest on our podcast? In like six weeks, I'm like, yeah, let's do this shit, okay? So I just had to go right back in. It was a, it was a challenge, right? Wow, okay. Yeah, and I made it happen. It, it was just literally exhausting. I remember we were like an hour and a half in. And I'm like, I mean, the focus that I had to have just to utter things remotely close to the, the ease sure. with which I can in English was just like, it was devastating. And about an hour and a half in, I kind of got stuck. I couldn't remember what I was trying to explain something. So we can switch to English. And I couldn't, I literally oh, really? couldn't because I, I'm like, I tried. I was like completely stuck because wow. I hadn't been, I would basically reimmersed myself into German at that point. Um, and these are, I mean, there's just kind of things that I, I did then, but I, when I was in Germany, I had been already been training for a decade. Okay. So it wasn't like I I competed, but, um, that sort of way of like kind of all or nothing had served me and it served me again. And since then, I think I've done like 10 or 12 podcasts, like four different podcasts in German, um, a couple, like I didn't get paid a lot, but a paid webinars in German, Yeah. And there's an entire, and the rule I've set out for myself, and this is getting getting to your question as to why I have been following the American scene so much, so to speak, is I made a rule for myself. Any and everything that can possibly be in German, I do it in German. Obviously, we can't do this podcast in German, but my phone, my computers are in German. I talk to my dogs in German all day long when I'm on dog walks, when I'm doing other things, when I'm driving around, I'm listening to podcasts in German, I'm listening to audiobooks in German, I'm having Conversations with myself in German in a very particular way. Wow. I listen to podcasts and when someone's saying something that might be in the area of, of exercise or sport physiology or, or bodybuilding, I do a, a shadowing technique where I hear them say it and then I speak right after them what I repeat what they've said immediately yeah. to ingrain the pronunciation. So I'm constant I'm immersing myself to the extent I possibly can in Little Germany wow
0: so Um,
1: and it's worked yeah go ahead please
0: yeah yeah so i mean i do think for learning another language the full immersion is almost required um you know i took years and years of spanish and i always you know strays and all this and and it didn't really matter i i would then you know i worked in a restaurant with a lot of spanish-speaking people and i was just so inadequate relative to like you know and obviously there's a lot of dialects and everything as well yeah, uh, you know, I went mm-hmm. to Spain for a couple of days, and it was just so different than just you know because in at least in America, it's kind of like rote memorization, right? So like you learn it, you mm-hmm. write it down, and I, I could converse, I could read it well, but it's just very different like a, you know a high level conversation for sure.
1: I when I went over to Germany the first time, like I'm like, oh my gosh, I I feel like I knew nothing. Yeah, how how it's spoken on the street. Um, and there the, are the dialects. I was in southern Germany, and Bavaria, and there's a there's a dialect that's spoken there. If you go out in the outside of a major city, all you're going to hear is the dialect, especially then thirty some years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's completely it's a completely different story. So to get to where I am now, um, yeah, you, you, it's it's not a matter of reading stuff. It's like the things that are that you heard in that I that you can listen to, like the standard High German. It's like no one talks like that. Yeah, interesting. You hear it in the news. It's very complicated. Yeah. Um. But yeah, there's so much, so much to it that has to happen on, um, in the culture, basically.
0: Yeah, yeah. Really I could go
1: on and on about this. I don't sure, want. To sure. Sure. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but it's been really, really fun because I'll tell you this related to bodybuilding. It's basically like another world. It's that they have their own um, individual bodybuilding subculture. Right. Marcus Rule is just huge.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: The big guy. And like there's I think there, there's like two or three YouTube channels. There's one that his wife does, I believe, which takes like clips from videos that he's done. And and there's others. And like I have a like is it over here, I think I think I have a. Tank top, it says it's a tank top and it says schwer and falsch, which means heavy and false means wrong it's like basically kind of training how how branch warren does like just throwing shit around yeah yeah yeah. and marcus rules old school you know and he's absolutely he's hilarious in english i don't know if you ever saw so he's even, still you know, big
0: in germany in terms of like podcasts and everything
1: he, he's still huge yeah, really? yeah yeah and he he doesn't he's kind of taken on a mythos in a way like he's yeah, he's just gigantic. He doesn't produce a, a ton of content. At least it doesn't the algorithm doesn't feed it to me, but he's still just widely popular.
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, he and yeah. uh I'm I'm sure I'm not saying it in the correct German way, but uh Günther Schlerkamp, Schiff, yeah. Um both of those guys, I mean, you look back at like the I always just think of the Ryan Jay days, but those guys, I mean, Rule was huge, right? I mean, massive, massive guy. Um yeah. neither of them won the Olympia, right? But but oh. still Massive.
1: Gunter beat Ronnie in that show um, during Ronnie's reign. Yeah. So Mr. Olympia, that was the only. But Gunter isn't. He's not in the German scene. Really. I think he lives in California. Okay. He's completely retired. I think he maybe trains at Gold's Venice. He gets interviewed every once in a while. You see him.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, but you mentioned you know this was right before Meadows passed, and obviously you you and John were pretty close. Um, but I mean, I could just rattle off probably 10 people just in the last couple of years. I mean, you know, Rich Piana and Dallas McCarver were the first two that I saw, you know, that I think mm-hmm. obviously people dying all the time, but those are ones in the social media scene that I saw. I was like, that had a big impact. And then there was Meadows, Cedric McMillan. Um, I think did Jordan, uh, or no, George Peterson, he passed, right? George, George Peterson, Peterson passed, Sean Roden. uh, Sean Roden. Uh, and then recently Joe Linder, probably one of the youngest ones we've seen outside of Dallas McCarver. Mm-hmm boston lloyd was like 29 and then i just posted my story uh, gustavo padel who you're probably more familiar with oh, than oh, all yeah. listeners yeah. um, i actually saw we could probably talk about this too that he i think it was 2005 during like peak ronnie Coleman time he beat ronnie and when they had oh. the challenge round yeah uh, the olympia which they don't do anymore um yeah. i guess the way that was and you know this better than i would that they would take poses and you could try to challenge another person with a certain pose and so i guess when he added up all the poses he actually beat ronnie coleman i don't know if you're familiar with that specific year oh i,
1: I remember watching it yeah i think i watched it live i can't, I can't remember if i went to so many Olympics. i can't remember if i was i think i watched it once just online but yeah if i remember correctly they put they had like the top six the top i think it's just the top six and i don't even know how they factored into the judging but they went down the line they allowed each of those um it was kind of like a challenge round they allowed each of those top that top group to call out someone else and then pick the pose, mm-hmm. right? I remember there's actually a funny scene. Speaking of Marcus Rule, there's a funny scene where, where Marcus. maybe they, they pulled the two people together, right, and didn't have a choice. And Marcus goes out there and like, and and then Ronnie gets chosen, and, he, and Marcus is like, "Yeah, oh, man, <laughs> <laughs> how am I going to beat this guy? There's no way." But Gustavo, and then the judges would vote on that particular pose. Who won? I forgot. I can't remember which pose that Gustavo beat Ronnie on. Um, but he used to do, like, his side chest in a certain way with kind of his fists together like this, and it looked yeah. awesome. It looked really, really good. I, it may have been that, because Ronnie's side chest, he kind of, like, had his his, his shoulder would kind of, like, crunch forward. He didn't really... He beat him in up a up, side like,
0: tricep. I know that. Okay, okay, um, that was it. Yes, yeah, so I don't yeah. remember. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, yeah, like, I, I didn't actually even really heard about the challenge round until uh, I, I saw that Gustavo pass. I mean, he was 50, yeah. which is not young i mean it's, it's young to die i would say it's not young like compared yeah. to like some of these guys but um you know and, and i don't know if that's obviously in bodybuilding a lot of these professionals have there's there's other stuff going on a lot of times right there's other like chronic mm-hmm. drug use and painkillers and, and you know lifestyle choices that maybe aren't ideal um but i'm just wondering if you have thoughts on obviously joe linder was like a big one i don't think you knew him personally or anything but more just that the general state of it seems like Maybe this is just because of social media getting bigger, but there's more and more of these stories that are happening. Um, Leo and longevity was another one I forgot about. That guy passed, um, right? But it could just be that it's more just being made of, you know, now.
1: Yeah, and the thing we and then of course we got the possibility of blood clots secondary to being vaccinated. Mm-hmm. You know, COVID. That's that's out there is like this totally kind of unknown factor. I'm not even sure how much I trust the science. I I watch retraction, or I have a, I get the the daily newsletter from retractionwatch.org. I think you appreciate it too. Mm. The number of retracted studies and plagiarism and just craziness that goes on in academia, they at one point had tallied like over 150 particular studies related to COVID in particular that had been retracted. And that was like a year ago. It's probably up over 200 by now. Wow.
0: How are Very they easy. determining? Is somebody looking into it and saying like, "Oh, this was actually wrong," and retracting it? Is it the original people who retracted it? All
1: all sorts of dastardly stuff. So wow. sometimes, sometimes um, uh, the data don't make sense. There's actually people that are sort of plagiarism hunters, okay, um, and they can find this. So there's there's situations where um, things like uh, oh, there's so many different things. Like uh, there's a professor who plagiarized his or her graduate student's work and published it without naming the graduate student
0: really um, wow
1: yeah there was Incredible. one there's one blood flow restriction related uh, article that was that was published sort of as a letter to, uh, extended letter to the editor with with included data that i remember this one <clears throat> because it was kind of in the exercise physiology realm mm-hmm. and the there was a second author on this letter And someone who knew that second author personally, another scientist, said, hey, did you write this? Like, this doesn't seem like something you would have put together. And the guy's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. What do you mean? The person who submitted it just completely came up with the whole thing, and it added someone, someone's name who has credibility to get it published. Um, There are, like, sometimes Nobel Prize winners that uh, literally they've, they've got five or six papers to get retracted, part of a series. Because the, they don't have the data, they can't reproduce the data. Um, I mean, it's just like it's really kind of, it's um, kind of scary. It's extraordinary. Oh, yeah, scary. Um, a lot of uh, sometimes political people who were scientists in the past. Uh, I mean, we're talking about people. Sometimes they somehow someone figures out that they falsified the data that led to them earning their PhD. The PhD gets retracted. Really. So oh yeah it's dog eat dog like is it i get it there's a there's three or four stories every single day
0: yeah geez.
1: there's a the weekend reads um i could click on it now if we had more time but so anyway but back to what you said like if you listen like from what i understand um joe Lindner, there was I, I think the the going theory and i'm not trying to create like um you know gossip but I, that he had an aneurysm I he had i believe a
0: relative that it had an aneurysm yeah i think his mom had an aneurysm and then his girlfriend yeah. posted he had an aneurysm she posted that almost right away so i don't know if that was you know if, if they qualified that with anything but yeah
1: that's yeah and that's i've heard that an autopsy said that as well this I, okay. I they're talking about obviously he was german so they talk about the bit and you've got like dallas mccarver i mean he was you know loaded to the gills with everything possible so if yeah. there's if there's some risk factors they're going to be accentuated by drug use like he was he was someone that that might happen to and rich piana as well Mm -hmm. lots of stuff involved there john on the other hand having spoken to john john was doing everything absolutely possible to preserve his health yeah seeing doctors regularly he had a a video with his cardiologist um i remember you know and i don't know i'm not going to speak to what the exact cause of death was john of john was but um, obviously John pushed the limits to some degree as he spoke, he spoke about openly in mm-hmm. video, especially at the end, there's what he did and et cetera, et cetera. But in those last couple, two years, like, especially after he had the heart attack, right. John was doing everything possible. And we know he had a history of a uh, potentially a clotting issue. And he had that other issue behind when he had his colon taken out. So, right, right. Was so it a
0: second not- heart attack with John? Is that how he passed the second?
1: I don't know what the I don't know I've never heard an autopsy report as to what oh, actually okay. that was. People had speculated. It's it's hard. It's even hard for me. Like you can't. Your memory will will trick you. as like yeah, these, yeah. these rumors. Like I can't remember if I, if that was a rumor what everyone mm. speculated or if I came to that conclusion in the conversation. Right. But I just know for sure because John and I were going back and forth, and he's concerned about you know kidney values being a little bit off. Right, all um, right. You know, and that he doesn't want to train too hard, but he's training, he's doing really, really well. And that like his heart, his echocardiograms were getting better and better and better. Mm. He's like, how can this be? You know, so um, so we got, we got a range of situations where some people are just pushing the limits like crazy and it kind of gets them while they're doing that. And then other people are being really, really safe. And then you've got just genetic happenstance. Sure. Maybe in the Joe Linder's, Linder's case. Um, Sean Roden, there's, you know, stuff out there about him having had some issues in the weeks before that, that he was just sort of kind of blew off, like oh, the China really? tourist types of thing. That's mm-hmm. what I've heard. But so, but we can't, I wish, I wish there was some way, it's almost impossible to glean out unbiased data to to determine, you know, to what extent, um, these deaths can be attributed to PED use because mm-hmm. these are all individual cases. I mean, just if we just think about the the possibility of of clotting disorders or clotting issues related to to vaccination. If you're a, a social media influencer who's traveling all over the place, for instance, in in Germany, they were requiring people to have been vaccinated just to like go to do anything. Yeah, I know friends of mine, coaches over there, who literally. They didn't want to get vaccinated. They didn't trust, like, we, we, those, these vaccines hadn't gone through the normal testing um, that typically, the, the, the 10 year process that typically would happen for a vaccine would be actually um, used uh, um, as the, as these were, they were on a sort of investigational or a, a temporary stage. I forget how they, how they term that with the FDA, at least over here. But Germans had no choice. Like these yeah. coaches, they want to go, they need to go support their athletes. They got to get vaccinated. So there are people who get got vaccinated because they wanted they needed to travel across countries, you know, multiple times. Um, because of varying rules like you want to go to the Middle East, you gotta get vaccinated, even though or with a different vaccine um than the one you just got vaccinated. So you like you double up within three weeks on two of them and like who knows what's going on there. Yeah. Right. Sure. So yeah, I wish I wish I could say, I mean, we know obviously that, you know most peds aren't going to improve your longevity or your life expect expectancy sure. there's no doubt about that so yeah and i look at like
0: you know some people i think on the extreme end like a dave palumbo at least from i don't you know watch a lot of his stuff but from what i've seen he seems to always just go back to it was just genetics it was just genetics and obviously there's genetic i mean i talk about genetics all the time there's a huge genetic yeah. component to many things but to say things are just genetics like i think he was even trying to say oh boston lloyd he had X problem. It was just genetic. And it's like, man, this guy was doing everything under the sun, taking it to the extreme for a decade. You really think this guy was going to die at 29 and not for the gear? There was no influence there. And I don't know if he's specifically saying there was no influence, but when I look at the all of the people we named, they were all heavy PED users. And I look at the natural bodybuilding scene. I can't think of a single person who yeah, like in the last decade that i've known i mean obviously people die all the time right people die tragically of, of different things but i can't think of any of these guys in the national community it's like wow a person was 40 and they just died of you know an mi or a p or anything like that i'm sure it happens but right. we don't
1: see so, that as much here's the interesting thing though um i mean i know and i haven't followed this all that closely i don't i don't have a td so i miss out on a lot of the news stories mm-hmm. but there are There have been, for instance, soccer players that have died. I know just that there's been two or three, I think. Um, and and I don't know that I think this is probably one factor to consider is that how if you think of your typical person who's consuming bodybuilding information, rattle off the top 20 national bodybuilders in the world and your typical consumers like they're gonna may, maybe know a couple of those names, you know, or the top 20 ever. Yeah, they're going to know right. maybe five or six of those, yeah. whereas you can rattle off the top hundred and they're going to know 98 of them. In the right? enhanced world, I mean. In the enhanced world. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So when someone who is, you know, a top level natural competitor passes five years after he was, was competing, the word's not going to spread. It's not nope. news necessarily, unless it's something like, you know, he... You know, he competed or he died and his he was bleeding out from his eyes or he yeah. died while he was lifting or something like that. There's no news to spread there. The yeah. um the new the media is there to they've trying to grab our attention. They need to do whatever they possibly can. So they're gonna just they're not presenting unbiased, randomly sampled information. Sure. Um so yeah, there's out without a doubt, if you look at enhanced versus non-enhanced, natural natural is the way to go. Not that natural bodybuilding is the healthiest thing, necessarily. Sure. Because because there are rigors there that are extraordinary. But, um, yeah, I think it would be interesting to look. Someone's probably already done this. I I would presume there's probably articles out there that you you can find on on just uh, athletes of various other sports where you don't at least expect that the PED use is sky high. Um, I think in relation perhaps to the pandemic. But overall, like, Natural bodybuilders now—they're not—they're not not dropping like flies. Like it seems like it's happening.
0: Yeah, even a point. I mean, Dante even makes that point. You know, even with other professional sports, where you probably are getting some PED use, just not Mm -hmm. to the same extent. I mean, again, like you do see some football players who die and and whatnot, but for the most part, I personally believe that most people at the top, top of any sport, are probably dipping their toes in in some of the enhancements, and Mm -hmm. you—you don't see, you know all these stories of nba players who that stuff would be going live right i mean that that would yeah. be immediate uh you know sensation and i, I it happens but obviously it's much more in bodybuilding and dante has talked about because it's not just anabolics; it's anabolics plus growth hormone plus insulin plus diuretics plus painkillers like it's just that whole yeah. com- world is just uh I, I don't know it seems like there's a lot of issues plus i mean more psychological issues i forget the one guy who was uh he was sponsored by red redcon um and he was a pretty young guy. And I think he might have killed himself. Oh, Luke Sando. Yeah. Uh, was it? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was like a year or two ago. Um, that, was,
1: yeah. that was right at the beginning of the pandemic.
0: Yeah. Everyone
1: was isolated. Everyone was isolated. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And yeah. It seems like that he may have, I don't know that it was ever officially announced, but it's it seems like he may have taken his own life. Yeah. It may have happened there.
0: So Yeah. Which, again, I mean, obviously, plenty people take their own life who are not enhanced right i'm I'm just saying like it right when i when i look at the enhanced bodybuilding world i just maybe this is a bias of mine there seem to be more psychological issues i don't know if you agree with that or not but you know if you think that
1: think about the mentality that goes into it yeah to to, just to take those risks right so these are risk-taking behaviors um there's a, a german bodybuilder um Heiko Kalbach, you probably don't know who he is. No. The Berlin Wall was his nickname. Okay, he's actually pretty big on the scene now, and he is the epitome of old school. Yeah, right. Um, there's also a, a natural bodybuilder. You may know his name, Patrick Teutsch. No, he's German. He's the best natural German bodybuilder. He actually last year was it last year? Uh, he got his IFBB Pro card in classic okay. as a natural competitor, and he's natural. I mean, I'm I'm I'm, you know, as con- convinced of that as it possibly can be. He's been like they test, do the random testing. They just show up, you know, on a Thursday morning at nine a.m. and say, mm-hmm. Okay, you know, let me I'm gonna stand right in front of you while you pee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no way around this. Um, and I've listened to lots of his videos, it seems like he's a great guy. And Heiko, for instance, I just saw or listened to part of a uh video where Heiko was evaluating like questions, what do you think of Patrick Toich's physique? And like he just is like Ah, it's just not not even worth talking about. He just like throws him into the garbage. And his he's a natural. He looks he looks absolutely freaking amazing. Yeah, like ridiculous, ridiculous, like top tier genetics. If he real and he actually and he kind of he kind of um uh he worked this pretty good. Like because now he's in the pro ranks, right? And he's kind of maxed out. Like there's not much further than he can go if he ever wants to compete as an IFBB pro. He's going to have to start, start with the PEDs and is he going to do that. And like, he must've had like eight videos. Like, like, will I start using PEDs they Yeah, yeah. Word, often is the word they use to, to, right. to stuff, to use stuff. Um, and, and now those are kind of faded. I don't think he's going to uh, because he's, he's a really smart guy. He's a, he's a sharp dude. He said, doesn't, it's not worth it.
0: Yeah. Um, well, good thing so, there's no such thing as the natural limit, right? Sky, we can just keep going. Yeah. So <laughs> he has no problems there.
1: Yeah. Well but, but back to back to Heiko and um like he is uh he's also known and they've talked about his he's mentioned I can't remember the numbers, his drug use in the past. He was an all he's an all or nothing guy. Mm. He looks at like body. it's not bodybuilding if it's natural, like like that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for just Marcus rule like massive. Yeah just crazy freakish otherworldly alien-esque level of body of muscle muscularity and kind of like
0: roderick chavez says that it's like there's no natural bodybuilding like it's it's not even worth doing
1: (laughs) So, so back to the topic then is like people who are going in enhanced there's a different mindset there to take that leap right um and i think the thing that can sometimes happen too is of course once you start down that road um, you know, there's the psychological impact of the the gear itself. Yeah, Stress, messing around with your neurotransmitter levels, you come off. There's could be depression that's involved there. You can call this a form of addiction or what have you. So, if you're someone who took that step, this is what I I suspect would be interesting to see is if somehow they could parcel out and do a psychometric tests, the correct ones. This is not my my wheelhouse, but on those individuals, maybe they could do a measure, a bunch, uh, test a bunch of individuals before they were when they're natural, and then ten years later, and get an honest report of whether they used or not, and see what differentiates those. Yeah, yeah. So psychologically, there's something different there, for right? sure. So that's one thing I think that, um, and who knows, it may also be. I think, and you've probably seen this. Um, how many times you've seen guys who have really good genetics and they don't use anything, they just they just look great. Sometimes people like to look great. They don't work out at all. Like they yeah. don't have any desire to work out. They've already got what they want. Like it was never, it was never, right. forbidden. It was never like this dangling carrot, like, Oh, I really want to look good. So they live a much healthier lifestyle. Whereas someone who tries and tries and tries and can't get anywhere. Like, well, they're the ones who, who then you start using drugs and, and now they're pushing their bodies way outside of what it normally would be able to do. It's quote unquote natural limit. Yeah, with the drugs. And so there may be some sort of a selection process thereby where the people with maybe the worst genetics for bodybuilding are the ones that would tend to use more drugs sure. and thus tend to have more health side effects because they don't ha- respond
0: really, really well. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah I think you're going to have both yeah. Of yeah. those extremes because you get there's going to be this select group of people like Aaron Coleman or something where they have such a good response they realize they can take it to the highest level. So they don't have maybe an insecurity about it, but they do it because it's like, this is achievable for me. So it makes sense if I could be an eight time Mr. Olympia, or even at that that level at all, it makes sense. But then I think probably far more, like you said, more people who do take steroids, I think it's probably a, you know, there's maybe this initial insecurity or whatever it is. They see some of these genetic phenoms out there and they, they want to be able to match that. So like you said, they push, they push, And these are the people who, you know, I I think steroids make a massive difference, but Mm -hmm. I still say genetics can make it. Yeah. But I still say genetics reign supreme because even Mm -hmm. the people who you'll hear, they did a moderate cycle and they gained 30 pounds of muscle. It's like, yes, because their genetics dictate that that's possible. There's other people who I'm sure you and I have both seen these people, two grams a year, and they wouldn't even know that they're taking anything, right? I mean, that Mm -hmm. that exists. And so Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the genetics are still dictating what's going to be the response, uh, and I think I mean I, I know numerous people who have taken gear and they look fine, but you wouldn't suspect anything.
1: <laughs> you know? You're like, oh my god, like you're obviously on something, dude. Like ha- how much? Holy crap! You think Right, that's right. Oh, amazing? Yeah, I mean, there's there there are natural competitors. I mean, Patrick Toich, he beat this. Was it was not a it was not a drug tested competition. There's a regular NPC competition. He beat I gotta look him. Up. Yeah, uh, you say his last T- name T E U T S C H. His his uh, most muscular is just
0: ridiculous. Oh yeah, yeah that's yeah. a that's a freak for sure. If that's natural. Yeah. That's ridiculous.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've watched the I've watched I don't know umpteen number of videos. I think he is, and now you see him like for instance now he's in his off season. Just saw a video of him uh, posing with another sort of uh influencer in germany who mm-hmm. is who is someone who uses gear that's one of the main topics he talks about and you can see the difference like there's it's substantial this thing is that patrick has been at this like he's been he's been competing for like 18 years or something like that you know yeah, he's got really good genetics he is like never misses dots every i crosses every t is absolutely perfect with everything like most of the best natural competitors are there's no there
0: with him yeah I remember when when that was a topic when that was a newer topic because it was always like okay like testosterone levels and then I think I first heard it from you about one of the genetic factors being androgen receptor density right um and that was and then um there was another one other factors like people just think of like oh good genetics is testosterone it's like well there's that, and there's a million other factors that go into it. But do you know what I'm talking about? It was the androgen receptor density was one of the that's
1: things? W- that's one thing. Satellite sep- cell density, maybe, is something I've talked about a good bit. There's actually yeah. a, um, a phosphodiesterase enzyme in the liver that's responsible for cleaving off that fatty acid, like in testosterone enanthate or testosterone sipionate mm-hmm. And the activity of that enzyme will, will determine... The area under the curve, the bioavailability that mm. you get from an injected steroid it's like the, the average was a sixty percent difference in area under the curve in individuals wow. with the two different single nucleotide polymorphisms for that gene. For that, it's like a seven A or seven B phosphodiesterase. Wow! So that, that means like one person—you know—you give two guys a two hundred milligrams, and one person gets three hundred twenty out of it, relatively. Yeah. just because of that one gene, so you combine you start multiply these factors where someone's got lots of satellite cells, you know, and they have a greater release of the growth factors that, that tell those satellite cells to multiply themselves and do the things the satellite cells do to contribute to the, the greater number of myonuclei that are needed generally to have larger muscle cells. And then they've got maybe just higher levels of testosterone in the first place and they got a more sensitive antigen receptor, yada, yada, yada. And all of a sudden like you got someone who just, they walk into the gym and they just puts around the next thing you know they're they're bench pressing four oh five you know right, right. <laughs> like I spent a lifetime and I never got to four oh five on the bench press. Sure. Right. Be- people use their people who you know geared up for a decade and they never get to four oh five on the bench press. Yeah. Uh, and, and I remember seeing a guy um he was a out for University of Texas at Austin and he weighed like one sixty five and he could flat bench like four fifteen. Really? Yeah. It was like uh-huh. I remember, I remember because there's a summer I worked when I was at University of Texas at Austin. I worked as a sort of a graduate assistant down there. Um, I had kind of a cool little research study that I, I got to do with the data. But so I was involved with strength testing. I remember seeing this guy like lie down on the bench. It's always, like, they were just like moving through, you know, with the linemen and, like all these huge frigging dudes are coming by. And all of a sudden this guy gets down and like, he looked like, like, honey, I, sh- I shrunk the the football <laughs> player. Yeah. Like, he was just relatively And then he like, and the bar seemed just giant. The plate seemed gigantic, and he he pressed the bar up, like fourteen or, or something like that. It was wow. four or five. So yeah, there's there's all these factors that can combine, and I think that's one of the things that's I've talked about this before. But that's one of the strategies that Mother Nature has is to have some heterogeneity to some degree, um, especially now because we don't have the the Darwinian. Um, evolutionary stresses that, that glean out whatever genetic factors um, disallow progeny from surviving. Like if you don't have the right gene for skin color, then you get blistered in the sun, you get skin infections and you die, or Mm -hmm. you don't have the right gene for this, that, and the other. So now, so we have this natural um, situation where you have, you look at some siblings, right? And they can look totally different. Um, And, uh, you know, so this situation leads to having lots of variability within populations. If you look at people who are Chinese, um, they tend to be more homogeneous. It seems like they're generally shorter. There's certain trends. But then you can have some individuals that are just like total outliers. So you're going to get that, I think, everywhere and all, you know, with probably with some exceptions, like some of the the Africans that are amazingly good at endurance Mm -hmm. uh, events, like yeah, they're probably not going to make the best bodybuilders. But who knows? Right. Maybe there was one or two, you know, at some point in time. But sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and, and it is interesting to see people who, I mean, just, just the response in general, and even the genetic differences in the ability to resist health issues, right? I mean, oh, I, yeah. I think at the, you know, elite levels uh, at the IFBB pros, like, you know, just part of it is like the attrition rate of people who just can't mm-hmm. take the side effects. And that's genetic too.
1: That's, that's gigantic. That's one of the things, um, if you've got both of those factors, you've got a high sensitivity to drugs, so they work really well for you, and you've got that hardiness um, that you can resist the side effects, then, then that's a person who, you know, can make it through a 10-year career and kind of, you know, skate out, you know, scot-free, pardon the yeah, pun. right, 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 right. Um yeah. So... Yeah, that's, that's gigantic because, I mean, there are, and I know there are coaches and there are individuals who just look at it as chemical warfare. That's their perspective. Um, and if enough people agree with that, then then I guess that kind of makes it chemical warfare. You know, if yeah, it's just sure. how you think about the game as being chemical warfare. And I, I think it's unfortunate because um, I wonder to what extent there are individuals who who went into becoming a pro and they took on that, that sort of perspective. And then after three or four years, they burnt out and then they lost after their pro career sort of ends. Like, okay, I went out, I went after it and, you know, maybe I, maybe I accumulated some, some health, um, effects that I, you know, that are long lasting, let's say, Mm -hmm. or, you know, just basic stuff like hypogonadism and they become somewhat, um, gonna say disillusioned, but they, they leave the sport thinking, man, okay, I'm done with this. I'm not even going to like, I don't even want to pl- even think about playing this game again because it's all just about drugs Yeah, and they lose what could have been something they could have enjoyed for many, many decades thereafter. Right. Especially because if you got really good genetics as a pro, you know, someone who got to that level, like you can just train as a natural and you look better than almost anybody on the street. Right. Yeah. So, I think it's so, that, yeah.
0: You can just be like you said, they become disillusioned. I mean, I know two guys who um took gear and now they barely lift because they just don't like 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 they saw what they could achieve with the gear.
1: Yeah and
0: they, you know, one had really bad anxiety, one had some other health issues, and they're just well, I can never get that again. So if they had stayed natural, they would have, like you said, like a lifelong, you know, love for it, hopefully. Yeah. Um and I think that's that's one of the biggest reasons I tell people that I would advocate against using it because like imagine like you're one of these guys who takes something and you're like 20 years old and you do it for a year or two whatever I mean w- depending on your response you may very well you know gain 20 pounds of muscle and maybe you only had 15 pounds left naturally you know depending on when you start lifting or whatever and right. it's just like well for the rest of your life you peaked at 20 you know whereas some yeah. of these natural guys they're still making progress until 30, 35, sometimes even 40.
1: Yeah. So the thing, there's several factors. You wonder someone who makes that leap at such an early age, what psychological proclivities do they have um, that, that that whereby they did that rather than saying, you know, I'm going to take this slow and easy. I'm going to train for the next two or three years, see where I can get. And then I'm going to go really, really slow, do – you know get the most out of the least so to speak um consider someone who's just like I'm all or nothing that may be someone who regardless if if bodybuilding didn't exist they may have and I'm not trying to like generalize but I think there's maybe some truth to this to some degrees that that might have been someone who was going to be sort of um uh, all all or nothing regardless of what they did in their life you know um there are certain people I've just sort of my my over the course of my five decades or so of life. There's some people who just, they're not happy. My mom once said this, they're not happy unless they're unhappy. Right. Um, right. So they may have been someone like he was going to, they were going to shit can anyway, you know, if they couldn't look like those pros. Um, but yeah. You, and, and, and then the other thing, of course, is that if they, if you train for a year and you really don't really know what you're doing, but you can use gear and just blow everyone else out of the water then you have you never learned how, learn how, right. learn how to hold on to that so to go back and try to relearn that you know is i mean here's maybe an analogy and i i can't speak to this with direct experience but i i wonder um is what is related to drug use someone let's take someone who um starts using psychedelics as a young person right and um and they have those experiences and then like okay no more psychedelics like maybe they had a near-death experience or they they you know they did something and they injured themselves when they're out there so they they say goodbye to that <clears throat> and but they really had this altered state of consciousness for which they long all the time and it gave them this sense of um of bliss and what have you and and a sense of stability let's say at some point in time and they can't forget that right sure It takes someone else who over the course of time decides to start meditating. And there are certain meditative states that you can have um, like holotropic breath work is something that people kind of can look up and you can have sort of otherworldly out of body types of experiences with meditation and meditation when practiced over the course of many, many years can be something that can really amazingly impact your mindfulness and create a sense of peace throughout the course of your day-to-day life. So, you got someone who used the psychedelics, whatever, and they had like a glimpse into that world, but they yeah. never developed the habits that come with someone who had to learn to actively, without the external help of a, of a pharmaceutical, learn to be the master of their own thoughts, so to speak. And yeah. that's, that's why, you know, and anyway, aside from all that, like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but so, you know, in the first couple of years, if you have the, the genetics to be, you know, an amazing pro right um so but that's a tough decision to make when you just want to look like everyone else on instagram so anyway i didn't mean to
0: interrupt you but no i I think it's an amazing analogy actually because i i do actually uh meditate myself and i've listened to like sam harris talk about that he's got the waking up app and all that and um he's had a number of interviews with people who have done psychedelic research or find the topic interesting and whatnot and i think one of the things that you said i had somebody say basically they didn't want to take the shortcut they didn't want to take the shortcut by using psychedelics they wanted to just Mm -hmm. kind of learn themselves i don't know much about psychedelics at all really it's not something i'm Mm -hmm. I'm super interested in personally but i i love the analogy of hey like if you had to get there through meditation you're not depending on this thing and and there are potential side effects of psychedelics i think that's actually why sam harris stopped using them he said he had done it a number of times and Mm -hmm. the last one or two times he tried it it was a really bad experience so he yeah yeah and so Um, I personally have, I'm just not interested in potentially having a really bad trip. So I'll I'll go the slow meditative route. Um, but I just, I think it's a really good analogy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think so. And I've listened to a lot of those Sam Harris, same Sam Harris podcasts. Um, so yeah, so it's the thing I think that's, that's really, really prevalent now. And this is where I thought you wanted to kind of go with this topic is, is that nowadays, I mean, social media is just, that's as much reality as, um, Outside of what happens in your cell phone or within, within the, the virtual reality of, a, of an electronic device for so many young people. I saw something, I don't know if this is the truth, but I saw something where a woman, there's a company that offers like online boyfriends and girlfriends you can have. Like So you can just chat and interact with the, basically a, an artificial intelligence. Oh, okay. Which, you know, and this this there's a woman who was in New York, and she apparently married her online boyfriend, and she was raving about how wonderful it was.
0: Um, wait, and sorry, I might have missed a second there. What, yeah, is no, a real it, person? Or, or no,
1: it's not a real person. It's an oh. It's it's a, it's yeah, it's a virtual boyfriend or girlfriend. You pay like, okay. like three hundred dollars, if I remember correctly, and, and they literally they do prop. Who knows it. Sure, it's somewhat of a scam, but they do an intake on the things that you like, and they actually create an online person um, Jeez. with whom so, you can chat. It's like okay. a Chat GP, but with a, with a visual presence yeah, and voice yeah. associated with it. Jeez. And people get absolutely utterly lost in what happens online um, in so many ways. And back to our topic with with bodybuilding is, of course, you know the algorithms of pushing. To you, the things that you click on and that other people click on, and those are the people with the best physiques, most of the time are people who are using, using stuff, using gear. Yep. So there's just like, I mean, this, this doesn't even mean to be said, but this is what's I think it's, it's almost being, the first thought is like, where do I get my gear? Not like, where do I learn how to train and eat and, and those other things. Yeah. And it's just a, a natural consequence of the world in which we live in now. Where reality online is supplanting the reality that you would get, let's say, you know, 30 years ago or 40 years ago, like when I was a kid in high school training in a basement gym, you know, in my in my hometown, you know, and everyone is just like, I mean, we're just going to town learning how to train and and talking amongst one another. It's a totally different situation
0: than And I don't now even know if right. there's really, I mean, I love that there's like the whole natural community and, and you know, the only way to do it is to just put out the good information, you, you know, be entertaining and whatnot, because that's going to get views as well. But there's always hopefully going to be this, this natural movement, but I, I don't, really see a plausible way it's kind of like when uh like dating apps came out right like that that box was just you know you're never gonna be able to close that box again right that's now a thing people don't have to learn how to socialize you can just you know swipe whatever and people come over and you know whatever you're gonna do Mm -hmm. so you're just not gonna be able to convince like everybody well nope it's better to go out and socialize with people that's it is what it is and when it comes to instagram and stuff it's like you know you you get what you incentivize and there's no way that when you see people with massive followings that and they get more following because they look so amazing and they get more attention and maybe attention from the opposite sex and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I don't see that ever going away that it's like, well, nope, just, you know, get rid of that huge incentive for young men or young women or whatever. I think that's just here to stay. And like you said, it it's like it, it's understandable when you think about how people mm-hmm. function and how they choose to do what they do you're incentivized to do it now. So I think it's kind of like a, you know, Pandora's box has been opened in a sense.
1: Yeah. The thing, the thing that would be, and there are physicians that will help with this is the thing that would be nice is if somehow we had a a medical system that would somehow at least take in individuals who had, who decided to go that route um, and work with them. I think many physicians are worried about whatever liability they may have. If you've got someone who's who's risk-taking, they don't want to touch that person with a 10 foot pole. Um, you know, the insur- insurance runs, rules the roost now. Yeah. Which, and you know, this more about this than I do. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm not sure how much it is in, in <laughs> dentistry. Yeah. But like, I mean, I had a, a client who wanted to see a particular doctor for a surgery and didn't have the right type of, they needed a PPO instead of an HMO or something like that, I think. And so that yeah. Doctor, yeah. they wanted, I'll just pay out of pocket. You're who I want to see. And it's like, Oh, I can't do that. Like, I won't be able to see anybody if I see anyone outside of the insurance. That's what, that's at least what he was told. So yeah, like that kind of crazy. So insurance is dictating who doctors can actually treat, right? That's, that's, that's outside of the realm of, of using, um, PEDs. But so, you know, what would be, what would be nice? Um, and I'm trying to think, we know we people are drinking alcohol, they're, Harming themselves in various ways. People are overeating. That's probably the best example. We've got, you know, this epidemic of obesity and we're, we're treating that. Like that's a, a, I mean, lifestyle issues are a large part of what our medical system is about. I mean, if you look at it, and this isn't trying to pick on anybody, if you look at type 2 diabetes, obesity, heart disease, cardiovascular disease, (laughs) A lot of those things are, th- are 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 lifestyle choices that are made by individuals, right? They, yep. re- they really are to some degree. Obviously, there's genetics that plays a huge role, as we mentioned, sure. and um and we and you could say like each time someone goes shopping and they buy, you know, all the shit that's in the center of the grocery store, right? and it's in packages, right. um, that's highly processed. That, that that they're doing, they're they willfully and to some degree knowingly, although they may be relatively ignorant to this, they're doing themselves some harm, and they've been doing that for years and years and years. And then they come to the doctor and say, you know, hey, um, you know, give me some uh, a GLP-1 agonist, give me, right. give me you know a COVID or whatever to treat my obesity yeah. or what have you. And the doctors, of course, do that. But if someone has decided, like you know, I I want to I want to I want to give these Peds a shot. Right? It's not a perfectly analogous situation, but um, but I want to f- follow my health and I want someone who can take care of me and tell me when things are getting really awry, doctors aren't going to take that on. And, sure. and and bodybuilders are renowned for not trusting doctors because right. they don't know their way around that that world yeah. Um, in large part, which is just a shame. So um, we've got this situation where we've got social media and basically disillusioning people as to what's possible because... Literally, those best physiques are the best physiques on who knows how much m- many PEDs, how much, but most people are never going to get there, right? right. I-, I always love it. Uh, I-, I really like it when I see someone who posts a lot, and they've got an average physique. I think it's awesome. I think it's <laughs> yeah. just fucking badass.
0: Pardon my well, friend. I'll have to post more just so I can fall into that category for <laughs> this guy.
1: <laughs> well, who knows But if, if the algorithm will show it to me? I don't know.
0: But Yeah, right. Or,
1: or someone, you know, who's like, you can tell, like, they're really into what they're doing and they're paying it. To, they're doing all the things right, you know, and they're dotting every I cross every T and they're really relishing their own progress. And they're comparing themselves to themselves, which is, I think, really where it's at
0: yeah no I think it's great I think like yeah. and you know you have those people who um I wouldn't say this because of average physique but maybe average in the Instagram world that um some of these guys have huh. come up I don't know if you, you know the names but like just like their username like Basement Bodybuilding and uh Bald Omni man's another guy and um but even like 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 a Steve Hall who I know you know like he's got a yeah. great physique but among the Instagram world maybe it's not like a top tier physique but you know he loves what he does there's a passion behind it and, and I think that's awesome Okay, so you know, one of the other things I really wanted to talk to you about was in the last few months, year maybe, we're seeing more about this, these like lengthened partials, right? And mm-hmm. and I know you're obviously very familiar with the whole stretch media hypertrophy. So for people who don't know, um Dante Trudel talked about like the the stretches being hypertrophic for years with DC training. You implemented three different types of stretches with fortitude training. Um, I've done both programs at this point. Uh, and this is, you know, some of the more research, uh, recent research I've seen with like Milo Wolf talking about it is not just the stretch, but also just, again, length and partials, saying that the stretch portion of the rep is the most hypertrophic. And, and you mentioned that some of this research actually goes back even further. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on it.
1: Oh, there's so much there. So, um... We see the literature somewhat mixed when they've tried to compare especially with the upper body, when they've tried to compare training when the muscles are in a lengthened position versus not lengthened. So like oh, there's two studies, for instance, of overhead tricep extensions, one showing no difference in muscle growth, the other showing some some difference. Um, you see a more consistent effect for sure in the lower body. And the thing that we need to kind of like a big picture here. Is to know that muscle is incredibly plastic, and it's adapting to the stimulus as we as we know. We're trying to get a hypertrophic adaptation, and what that means then normally you sort of think of muscle fibers cross-sectional area, but we can also think of things in ter- in terms of muscle volume. So if you take a muscle that's just the same cross-sectional area, but now it's longer somehow, or it's it's lengthened itself. Let's say you've got more muscle volume. So right. Or, if you've got a muscle that's adapted to training in a lengthened position, then one of the things, one of the ways you can do that is by adding sarcomeres in series um, or lengthening the fascicles, is one of the ways that they'll measure this. Um, so that when that muscle is producing force in that lengthened position, it's not lengthening the sarcomeres and the, thereby minimizing the actin myosin overlap and having a situation where there's diminished potential for force production. So, especially in muscles that are pinnated, like the vastus lateralis, muscles that have fascicles or fibers that come in at an angle, those can adjust. You'll see a change in the angle of pinnation or the change in the fascicle length. So that that muscle now um, has added sarcomeres in series. It's got longer fascicles. So it's basically from the perspective of the, of the fascicles or the sort of the, the sarcomeres, the units of muscle contraction, it's got more of those units. So the change in length of the sarcomeres is less um, in that lengthened position, having more of those in series. So it's in a better position to produce force in the lengthened position. And that sarcomerogenesis, that addition of sarcomeres, means we've got more muscle mass there. We've got more myofibular protein that's right. involved. So that's something that actually, interestingly enough, those adjustments in fascicle length or angle of penation, um, they tend to happen more so with with eccentrics. Um, in the, sorry, in the, with, with eccentric contraction, actually, yes. And in the length and position, you can particularly get changes in the and growth in the distal portions or the, the ends of the muscle near the near the tendons during eccentrics doing eccentrics. If you just do concentrics, you can actually have a shortening of the fascicles to some degree. Not really. Uh, yeah. One study has shown that and these effects on angle pination and fascicle length, they're something that can happen in as short of like short as like a couple weeks. And so those take place and this is in situations we take individuals untrained and train them in a very specific way to exaggerate the impact of training the link, length, and position. Um, so like there's the Pedrosa study we may have talked about. It's like one of the biggest ones that's been out there with training in the lengthened position versus full range of motion. I
0: don't um, think we talked about it. Okay. I, I mean, I it. know of it, but if you want to go yeah, into it,
1: maybe I heard you talking about it, but it, the, the specifics don't matter. There's so many of these studies out there. There's actually quite a good bit of studies. Um, uh, and we find that um, one, for instance, comp- you have to make a comparison. Um, I think in that study, they did like three sets of seven reps, something like that, to start off with and work their way up to six sets. Mm-hmm. And the seven reps were at like 60% of a one rep max. And given their rest intervals, they suggested that their their subjects could only could barely achieve those three sets of seven with 60%. So, one group's doing full range of motion with the one rep, 60% of the one rep max for full range of motion, whereas the other group's doing um, partial range of motion in the lengthened position on a knee extension in this case, okay. with 60% of the one rep max in the lengthened position, right? The specific so these, to the
0: movement,
1: yeah. Specific to the range of motion in which they're training, all doing knee extensions, but the different ranges of motion. So, there's a very pre- particular specific circumstance that they're creating scientifically experimentally to kind of tease out what's going on in terms of these architectural changes you see in the muscle and what you get when you train the length position is an adaptation to the lengthened position which is awesome yeah which means when you come back and then measure the muscle volume or the muscle cross-sectional area and measuring along the entire length makes a difference too because the eccentric can add to the ends in, in particular when you get back to an anatomical position you see then that that increased length means increased volume because now you've got a longer you got more meat in the muscle tube so to speak so you got a bigger muscle which is exactly what we're looking for um, right so but these things happen and then they are reversible in a matter of weeks so the question is um, and this is why, like, the, sort of the concern I have, like, this is like, oh my gosh, like, we this is the new veil, the, new this thing, is the new yeah. holy grail of, <laughs> of muscle growth. Is if you're someone who hasn't been exploiting training in the lengthened position, this could very well be something that could be useful for you, especially, for instance, for a weak muscle group, right? So let's, let's say um, you've been doing lots of bench pressing, lots of pressing, and you want to be as strong as possible. You remember um, this just popped in my mind. I hadn't thought about this in a long while. Remember um, Power Factor training? I think John Little was the author.
0: I remember the name, but I'm not super familiar with it.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm not either. I never did, but the but the basic idea. And I'm sorry if I'm bastardizing what the someone may say. Oh, that's not how it works. But I yeah. think the idea was to pick an exercise, and this was like from what I recall, they were completely ignoring biomechanics and muscle act activation throughout the course of the range of exercise and and just looking sort of at your strength curve and the suggestion was that only the strength curve wherever you're strongest in the range of motion so let's say you're you know you're weakest on a bench press or an incline press what have you you're weakest at the bottom you're strongest in the middle and you're weakest at the lockout so you would just train in that in that um portion of the range of motion where you're strongest
0: oh really okay
1: yeah, that was the idea. So that's because that's the most force you could produce, right? Yeah, yeah. Regardless of whether the forces in the target muscles or what have you or whatever biomechanics are leading that. Um, so let's say you're someone who like took that kind of approach or you tend to train with the range of motion where you can move the most weight. You squat really, really shallow because you can move 500 pounds on a quarter squat as opposed to two and a quarter for a deep squat take that sort of sort of ridiculous scenario where you haven't been yeah. trained in the lengthened position. Um, let's say for a muscle group like chest, you're not trying to um, pull you know pull a pack, tear a pack so you don't train in a really lengthened position. It could be for someone that they might experience muscle growth by taking relative to their strength of that range of motion. So if you are um, someone who can do flies with a relatively limited or kind of your standard range of motion, um where you're being very very careful you're not going super deep there are some um like brutal fox was an old school guy who used to do flies and like he would literally take the dumbbells almost to the floor yeah <laughs> train, the train used, used to train really really ballistically too like crazy um and i think i saw um a am blanking on his name I, i've seen other old school bodybuilders do this but have you ever seen
0: anybody tear a peck on a deep fly just curious in personal personally no i haven't either it yeah. just seems like the barbell bench press is like i've seen people take extreme range of motions with dumbbell flies and even dumbbell bench press and i, I don't see it even a fraction of the time you see it with a barbell bench
1: if you look in the literature too like pec chairs it's like almost all always barbell bench press yeah yeah there's a yeah some studies and reviews it's like almost always barbell bench press. yeah <laughs> but i think there's an ego thing involved there everyone wants to have a big bench right sure, sure. um and when it comes to, I mean, you've seen, I've seen this too. You watch, like, here's my chest chest training for iPhone Pro X, Y, and Z, and like they're doing like 405 incline presses. Then they maybe go do flies and they're using like the 80s. It's like, man, you could be using the 140s, right? But they, so people, I think, maybe a little more inherently careful with flies sure. part of it. But let's say that person decides, you know what, instead of do, doing like the hundreds and my sort of abbreviated fly, I'm going to take the 40s and go really, really deep. Yeah, because that's what there's a heavy weight in that deep range and they just do partials in that range of motion. Yeah. That's something that could bring this up, but back to what you used to introduce this whole topic is that this is something that Dante had figured out that I found was effective too, is that what we need in that length and position in order to, to take on or to, to harness whatever additional hypertrophy might be lacking from normal range of motion, um, uh, exercises, in particular, well, where the loading curve or the resistance profile is lacking in that lengthened position, right? So it's really, really easy coming out of the hole in lengthened position is you can then do isometrics or loaded stretches in that stretch position, which is a much, it's a very, very safe way. It's not a dynamic. Isometrics will produce really good muscle growth, Yeah, those data are out there, and you can actually do that. And this is Dante's, this DC train has been around for how long, right? Um, And that is something that he figured out was, was an additional addition, additional stimulus that can be added to your, your, your basic concentric eccentric couple contractions of regular reps to harness that aspect of um, accentuated muscle growth by lengthening the, the, the fascicles of the muscle. Um, that some people might be missing out on if they're just chasing the long book and trying to like beat um, beat their PRs, because that's a tendency that I know I was completely guilty of. Like I want to be in my water <laughs> yep. and my range of motion would start to suffer. And I, every year or two I was like, okay, go back to basics, dude, take your squats, rock bottom, you know, take everything down, take put a little miniature pause at the bottom of your, of uh, your pressing movements, full range of motion on everything. And So anyway, the the long story short is if I think it's possible that some people may have been missing out if depending on how they train, but if you've been training with full range of motion, um, there may be some muscles where perhaps you've missed out on this, the stretch mediated hypertrophy. Um, but I don't know that it's going to, you know, um, make or break someone's progress necessarily. I haven't seen that. I don't know there's any studies with trained individuals where they've seen these kinds of effects. I have to go through and look through all the studies to see what the training status was. But training status is
0: always sort of a relative thing anyway, you know? Sure. Well, you know, because you mentioned something that I had kind of wondered as well. You said, well, maybe if they weren't going to the lengthened position as much, maybe they'd benefit. And I actually... Had a conversation in my most recent podcast with eric helms where he i don't know if you saw that recent study where they had that device to stretch out the calves he's trying to
1: understand or was going to
0: yeah i'm waiting for him to get the final results on that so something that he had mentioned and we had talked about is like you know maybe this specific stretch mediated growth maybe it's something different like it's it's a, a different mechanism but mm. something i had said was well it's possible that with these studies you're seeing this significant growth and maybe it's just that it's going to add x percentage or x amount of growth. But then once you've kind of gotten that growth, that's it, like it's you've kind of tapped out the stretch mediated growth, it's not like it's just going to keep making your growth 5% more continuously, but you just have that extra thing, you know, Um, and it sounds kind of similar. It's like, well, if you haven't been doing a lot of work at the lengthened portion of the rep, maybe you'll get a little bit more, but it doesn't mean that it's just going to like you said unlock these dramatic gains over your whole career lifting
1: it's interesting because this is kind of what i was was pointing towards in the idea with the idea that the fascicle length changes that the fascicle angle changes angle of penation changes they happen in the course of you know a few weeks a couple months um as long as you and they but they're also reversible so you want to maintain those and that does sort of open up greater potential so to speak for growth. So once you've got the lengthened fibers, then you've got longer fibers that are st- still going to grow in the by adding myofibrils myofil- to the periphery, increasing the cross sectional area of the, of the fiber. So you've now got a little bit of a longer and thus a bigger tube, so to speak, um, to which you can then grow in the traditional way that we sort of think of muscle hypertrophy happening with the increase in fiber cross sectional area. But, but yeah, it's, it's not something that's going to like, um, you know, add, a, like, put your, your regular hypertrophy in a hyperdrive in some way, shape, or form. The interesting thing is, is that, I mean, I've always sort of wondered, and we've we known for the longest time that muscle remodels in this way from casting studies. I, I often talk about people with spinal cord injury. Um, you find that if you look at, like, their calf muscles, the muscles of their leg below their knee, um, the plantar flexors are atrophied because they tend to sit in their wheelchair with, with implantar flexion. Right. So the anterior tib remains maintains normal size compared to able body controls. It's in a lengthened position because they standardize the foot placement. So it's 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 in it's atrophied relative, uh, but it's it has it, it atrophied, but it's got that increased volume because it's now set itself up to, set itself up to be in a lengthened position. So then when you bring the muscle back up and and then shorten it again, you got a bigger bag of muscle. When you bring the foot back up to a standardized foot placement or ankle placement for the measurement, so I've always sort of wondered. And this is something that I sort of generally seen. And I tried this out myself once. It didn't notice much, but um, it's just your your customary posture makes a difference. So if you're always slumped forward like this, we know this from hmm. if you cast someone at at a an arm at a right angle for whatever reason, or they got their arm in a sling. The biceps will activate more than the triceps. Right. So if you're sitting all day long, you know, crunch forward, that's not the best thing for standard for the length of your pectoral muscle fibers, because they're seeing that on a regular basis throughout the day. And I think this this um, device study was like like one hour a day um, for a few months, eight weeks, maybe. Um, And it's fairly painful, too. Like they had like a like a pain measurement of eight on a 10 scale or something like that it was, it was
0: yeah they and it was for like an hour you know? yeah yeah so, all right yeah yeah it was, it was well, pretty, that's extreme i've been willing to try it i haven't <laughs> i don't know i've mentioned on the podcast numerous times i have particularly stubborn CAS. um yeah just they really i've tried really everything you can imagine including the really intense dc stretching the uh dc mm-hmm. treadmill walking method all that stuff and it just and i've yeah. seen people claim it worked really well for them but Uh, just wasn't my experience but i'd I'd certainly be willing to try it i think eric tentatively said that he saw some results from it at least visually Mm -hmm. but they were actually going to do i believe it was ultrasound to to really be sure or they might have i think he said they took a biopsy on him as well so i'll be interested to see the full paper
1: but you know what's interesting there's also a a mouse study from like the 90s probably um looking at changes in muscle fiber length and sarcomerogenesis. And um, they had various sort of cohorts of mice and they casted the uh, the ankle in a plantar flex position. So they shortened the calf muscles um, and you saw a change in muscle length. Of course, if they stayed in the cast position, then you know that was evident in a matter of weeks, I think. Yeah. Um, and then they tested to what it, to what extent what, what they would do with the various groups is they would anesthetize the animals, take off the cast because you barely got to kind of cast these animals because they'll chew right through stuff. They like they don't want to have stuff on them. They'll just go after us. They probably had to make it out of metal. or some, Who knows what? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think uh, at I think at a half an hour a day or an hour a day, what they would do is they would take the cat the animals un- un- unconscious and then they would just do some passive range of motion work just like back and forth for like, I think a half an hour was sufficient or an hour for sure. I'd have to go back and look um, to prevent this shortening effect. So it okay. didn't, you know, so when it's shortened, just like it was casted continuously, the muscle readjusts its length and that meant atrophy, but they could prevent that with just like a half an hour, an hour a day of just, it was just passive movement. So it's just enough of a signal to the muscle to tell it that, no, nope, you're going to experience so this particular range of motion, don't don't go all in and readjust muscle fiber length entirely, because there's going to be a situation in the day when you're, we're going to need to operate in this lengthened position, the normal range of motion for the ankle joint, for uh for these mice. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So it may not take an hour, you know, it may take 15 minutes or a half an hour, right? Um, or maybe something you could do, you know, if you got a, a standing desk or something at home. Um, there's also those we talked about those those shoes with the with the big pads on the forefoot that people walk uh, around jumper shoes. We? You know, I thought we talked about those when we talked about calves before. Wait, yeah, maybe. there's there was a guy I went to high school with who was a basketball player and a soccer player, and he walked around in those and he had gigantic calves, and he claimed okay. it what happened. Yeah, you can still buy them on. Um, on Amazon, or they're, they're like elevator uh,
0: shoes. shoes, like that, or I guess
1: kind of. They just have a giant, like about a two or three inch pad huh. on the forefoot of the shoe, okay. so you have to walk on the balls of your feet. Okay, like certain people do. I know I talked about this with Scott McNally on my podcast because yeah. his calves are just
0: otherworldly. Oh really?
1: Oh my God, his calves, his calves are world class. Really? Just Google it. His calves are just absolutely sick. Huh. And we talked about this. We talked about you see this in in overweight people who are yeah, sure. on the load. And you see this in people who don't have a um, much of a heel strike who tend to walk more in the forefoot of their, of their feet. Um, yeah. Which some people would argue is how we're meant to run, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that only with shoes do we have kind of this heel strike type of running pattern that, that most people display. Right. So like I was talking to Scott, I'm like, yeah, man, you must. And he just totally unaware of this. Like, oh, he's really? always up on the, he was, he was, and now he is. Cause we, we thought about it. He started paying attention and he sent me a video. It was hilarious. He just took the he took his phone and put it down at ground level because he noticed this previously. It's like I got a video this for Scott. And he's just when he's just doing his dumbbell side laterals, he's uh-huh. up on his toes. His heels were literally like a centimeter or so off the ground.
0: Do you think though? Because I remember I had a uh, so my freshman year of high school, or sorry, my freshman year of college. I lived on the ninth floor of this building, and you know it was like the double mm-hmm. staircases. So you're talking like really like eighteen flights and i more or less refused to take the elevator so i would every time i walked to my room i would go on my tiptoes up and down the stairs uh and you know people won't be surprised to hear it did not do anything for me (laughs) but i remember my like a guy i was lifting with at the time huge calves and he was like yeah i think it's because i walk on my tiptoes and I, i sometimes i wonder though is it that or is it because you already had huge calves and therefore you start to walk in a pattern that uses the calves like it, it which one kind of came first i don't know if there's any logic to that but
1: yeah there there is scott said he always ran that way like when he was in like pe class if i remember correctly like he was always like ran on his tippy toes okay so so it was probably a little bit of both you know because his calves did develop in a yeah. way that allowed for that locomotor pattern to persist then he just kept on running that way right the, the thing is, and, and I say this all the time, is that we're, like, with bodybuilding, and unfortunately, you know, you've, you've got the short end of the stick, so, so to speak, as far as calves go, yeah. it's just, it's just muscle growth is, like, yeah. there's so many more effective ways to, for strength gains to occur and mm-hmm. for muscular performance gains to occur other than muscle hypertrophy. Right. And there's some people argue that muscle hypertrophy is just sort of kind of an after effect. It doesn't really contribute that much to the performance enhancement that you get from directed strength training, neurological effects dominate. That's a, that's a larger percentage of strength gains than you see when you look at the amount of muscle mass it's gained.
0: Over the Is that? I know period. some people talk about that. Um, the guy I'm blanking on his name who kind of almost more so popped by Jeremy Lenneke. Um, yeah, he's kind of yeah. had like a strong argument saying that they're really yeah. not tied together and I said to him, I said, but do you really think somebody could get maximally strong? Like if they could if there was some way to train, like just singles or something, to really get maximally strong without the accompanying hypertrophy. And I, I know you said maybe it's just an after effect, so it's still gonna go there. But there seems to be I know Greg Knuckles did an analysis on this, or at least he talked about it, that the correlation between muscle size and strength was tremendous. And I mean, at the higher levels, it was almost completely predictive of one's strength. I don't know if that i suppose you could still continue to just say yes but again as a side effect uh, but you seem to think it's borne out that it's mostly neurological
1: no that that's the, that's lenicky's group's argument actually i was just i was i was re- reflecting back how i understand them to perceive okay. in the short term that's what you see yeah um in the short, short term, term. Yeah. yeah yeah um and i have do not know if i've seen greg nussell's analysis but i've talked about this before I'm going to have a presentation where I kind of cover it. And there is an association, depends on which study you look at.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Like there's a study with rugby players, I think, where they just measured like lean body mass and um, uh, bench press strength, which is one of the things they're testing and squat strength. And there's a correlation of like 0.6 or something like that. So it's not, not all the variability is accounted accounted for by muscle mass or fat free mass, but certainly there's something going on there. So, the point I was kind of getting at is that like with pretty much all things biological, there's going to be, uh, a normal, uh, you, uh, an inverted U curve there it's going to be a normal curve. And there's different ways to adapt to that stimulus. And when you think about it from an energetic perspective, um, I mean, you do actually see individuals who are morbidly obese, so they've got plenty of, of energy. There's an energy surplus there that got them there. Or there's been persistent, and they don't have a whole lot of muscle mass. Yeah. Right? That yep. does happen. But then if you look at, like, sumo wrestlers who are probably, they're naturally athletic to some degree, and they've got a lot of body fat, but they've got the highest recorded fat-free mass on record.
0: Yeah, on I remember muscle seeing muscle that mass. data. Yep. and they So they eat their way up to that. So.
1: So was, were had, were
0: professional bodybuilders included in that? I I remember seeing it so long ago. The sumo I wrestling. Data. I don't
1: think so. I don't think anyone's going to be like Big Rami is going to be hard to prove. Yeah, that's what know. I. Yeah,
0: I, I imagine yeah. It's, it can include yeah. that group. So
1: yeah, but those guys, I've never like Ronnie Coleman. You know, he, he was on the Joe Rogan podcast, and yeah, they gave him the number of like negative percent, but that means, right, right, 03 right.
0: percent. Right. Yeah, yeah, right.
1: <laughs> and, and I had that happen to me. Like I had a Dexa scan done when I was in grad school. Um, not my whole body fat percentage, but we did it was a body comp lab. We did skin folds. We did bod pod. We did hydrostatic weighting. We, we used um, we did total body water measurement as well. And we did DEXA, um, a couple of different skin folds. I think we used like circumference. We did it. Basically, everything was available eight or nine different tests and i was i had done my my first competition this is like 1997 first competition i knew the body comp lab was coming up so i i, I hung on to okay my, <laughs> my body comp because i want to see what it would come out as and yeah. i was like four or five percent on everything wow I, stayed, I was pretty lean and my torso dexa scan told me i was like negative 0.7 or negative 1.3 or something like that
0: really just because the calculations right. and
1: because yeah, they they're the algorithms that they use, the predictive equations they use are based on people that that have body fat percentages in the normal range, that yeah, aren't yeah. that low, right? So they just they just use the the data that are collected from the 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 decks, the dual X rays coming through, to then predict what would happen. Originally, some of those data are produced with um, with animals where they can actually do a chemical composition measurement. You know exactly like. Dexa is amazing. Like you can, you can take a yeah. slab of meat and throw it on a Dexa, like a huge, like half a cow or whatever, and then it'll tell you X percent body fat. Really? And then you do chemical composition, and it'll be like exactly that. Like so. Wow. So there's some calibration that goes on, and if you have someone who's not part of your your sample used for the calibration curves or for the algorithm development, then they can tend to be an outlier. So because because Obviously, I didn't have negative. I didn't have like a, a body fat black hole that would right. just gobble up any body <laughs> fat and came from right. right. Um But because their algorithm didn't include people from from my population of contest ready bodybuilders with extraordinarily low body fat, it just wasn't accurate. Or sure. it, was, it wasn't valid is actually the correct term. It was so they uh, didn't right, right. Didn't, it, yeah they didn't have the right population.
0: Yeah. So it. so just to kind of. um I guess round off the topic of the lengthened partials. So you had mentioned, uh, you know, these weren't super well trained individuals either. So it sounds like your general thoughts as of now. I think there's four, maybe fifth study coming out on it, Um, at least as far as specifically lengthened partials. You feel if somebody's not been using a full range of motion and they start going to more lengthened positions, that's going to benefit them. But if somebody's, let's say, got yeah. a decade of training, full range of motion throughout that time you don't think just like specific length and partials work is going to do a whole lot that they haven't already seen.
1: There's, there's the possibility that you could have over, you could you could have exaggerated what's, what's left on the table um, by not having done those. Yeah. I've included those. We did. We, I've just got the stretches in fortitude training, but I've also got the, um, the pump sets, right. which include partials. Yeah. Um, the thing the thing that's important here too is that we've got we've got purely stretch mediated hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. And just from passive tension, that tension actually will can turn on protein synthesis. That can be that can be seen um, just in passively stretching. Um and that's probably protein synthesis that's coordinated to produce these input this effect on fascicle length and pennation angle. Um but also can be what can be important, um this has to do with exercise selection um, and mind muscle connection is that you can actively produce tension in that lengthened position. So back to your kind of question, you could have someone who let's say, um, you know, they're not getting good lat growth, right. But they're doing like full range of motion lat work, Yeah. but the lats can be difficult to activate in the lengthened position. Um, so, the strategy that Dante had in place that I've been using that is part of the pump sets and the stretches in fortitude training is you can do partials or you can do very, very focused lengthened position partials with an exercise where you've got a good mind muscle connection and you're getting the passive tension just from being in that stretch position plus the the active tension, which is the more ideal situation to have. Yeah. You've got certain, you've got this neuromechanical matching phenomenon where you're, 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 you're your muscles, your your CNS know not your muscles, but your CNS knows when it's most advantageous to when you're executing a movement to activate the different movements in the kinetic the different muscles in the kinetic chain. So it's not going to get your your glutes in the lengthened position when you're doing a particular type of machine squat if that doesn't allow you to have a coordinated squat given the biomechanics of that machine. But you might be able to use that machine. Um, and adjust your foot position and machines allow you to do this and go and do partials in that bottom position and just with a good exaggerated mind-muscle connection hit your glutes. Yeah. And, and that's the thing that I think is, is kind of underestimated is that the mind-muscle connection can over... If you've got a good mind-muscle connection, you can, can take kind of a somewhat shoddy exercise in terms of producing growth in particular muscle group and make it into a decent one if you can turn on a mind-muscle connection, especially in this lengthened position, or even in a shortened position, if you can use the mind-muscle connection. So that's, that's something that is really kind of, I think, unexplored territory, because I have the sense that a that lot of really good bodybuilders, are they have the athleticism, and they learn how to, how to develop, or they had it just from the start. They were just naturally gifted to target the muscles that they're trying to train with the given exercises.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, well, I, I love the input on all these different topics, man. Um, hopefully it's not another year before we get to talk again. Yeah. I, I'd love to go longer, but I know we have some restrictions here. So yeah. um for people who have not heard you before, I would really encourage anybody to, and I'll even put the direct links there, to go back and listen to the old podcast that I've done with Scott, because I consider him one of the best minds in the space here. And Scott, other than our own podcast together, where can people find more of your stuff?
1: We talked about a lot of uh, the easiest way is Instagram, actually, yep. or just, you can just Google Scott Stevenson bodybuilding. I come up with fortitude underscore training. That's my training system. We mentioned, mm-hmm. so I just chose that as an Instagram. And you all know.
0: DMS have to be in German. Is that right? All the what? All the DMS, all the DMs have to be in German. You, know, if you they can want do response. that.
1: You can do that these days. You know, <laughs> it's not hard to do actually. Just use Google translate.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right, I will
1: resp- right. If you write me in German, I will respond in German. There we go. Absolutely. <laughs> cool. that's awesome.
0: Do. Well, thank you again for your time,
1: man. You're welcome, my man. For sure.